Well, welcome back to our study of the Gospel of Luke this morning. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 3, verses 21, all the way through chapter 4, verse 13 this morning. And what we're going to find is that the spotlight is going to shift in the text from John the Baptist and his ministry of baptism at the Jordan River over to Jesus. And it's going to happen at this baptismal scene. There's like, there's like this intersection of John and Jesus that we're going to see in Luke chapter 3. And that's where our text is going to unfold. And as I read, and I'm going to warn you, I'm not going to read the whole text this morning. And I think you'll find out why. Okay, as we, as we work our way through this text, however, you're going to find that it falls into three different segments. It starts with the baptism of Jesus, and then it moves into a section of genealogies. That's the part I'm going to commend to you to read this afternoon, the genealogies. And then it goes to Jesus' baptism, or his temptation, I mean. So baptism, genealogy, temptation. Would you follow along as I read? I'm going to begin in Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying... The heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Verse 23 says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, I love this little parenthetical phrase next, being the son as was supposed, of Joseph. And there Luke is upholding the virgin birth of Jesus. You can see that there. And he continues to unfold chapter 3 with this lengthy genealogy that ends with Adam. Take a look at chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. When they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me. It will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands he will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would teach us from your word. We ask that you would cause our estimation of Jesus to be increased our thankfulness for his active obedience 
It's what's earned us a robe of righteousness. It's his merits and not ours. That's how we come to you. And so we give thanks for this opportunity to learn more about the obedience of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be looking at this text and thinking to yourself, we've got the baptism, the genealogy, and the temptation of Jesus. How in the world do these fit together? Like, Lucas, who's the crazy person that blocked out these different sections of scripture and squished these together? Well, I'm the crazy person that did that. So maybe you're wondering, what is the unifying principle between Jesus' baptism, the genealogy, and the temptation of Christ? Well, I think the unifying theme that's woven through each of these three segments is, is this. Jesus is the Son of God, and we are blessed because of it. What binds these three parts together? It's that Jesus is the Son of God, and we are blessed because of it. Notice first from the text that Jesus is the beloved Son. So we're, we're thinking to ourselves, the Son of God? What does that mean? Well, the text begins to unfold by showing us that Jesus is the beloved son. And we see that in this opening little section of verses 21 and 22, a very brief account of Jesus' baptism. I mean, when you read the other gospels, like Matthew, for instance, you, you have a much lengthier account. But here, notice that Luke doesn't even mention who baptizes Jesus. I mean, he's just got this little short little segment about Jesus' baptism, and we might be tempted to breeze right over it, but I think we should pause for a moment because Jesus' baptism can be a bit confusing. If you're wondering why the sinless Savior would go to John the Baptist to be dunked in the Jordan River, if you're wondering that, you're not alone because John himself wondered that. Do you remember that? When, I mean, when Jesus starts coming towards John the Baptist saying, I want to be baptized, John himself, this is Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, John himself would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so. Now, what was going on at the Jordan River as we learned when Pastor John preached last was that John the Baptist was calling Jews to a baptism of repentance. He was explaining to them that their family heritage was not enough to make them acceptable to God. In other words, just because you have a family pedigree that comes down through Abraham, it doesn't mean you're rightly related to God. And so John is proclaiming this, and Jews are being baptized, and here comes Jesus. If you've been tracking what we've learned about Jesus so far in the Gospel of Luke, then you realize that as Jesus approaches John, Jesus has already been identified in chapter 2, verse 26, as the Christ. In chapter 2, verse 11, as the Savior. In chapter 1, verse 69, he's already been identified as the horn of our salvation, or in other words, our mighty Savior. 
in chapter 1, verse 32, he's been identified as the Son of the Most High. In chapter 1, verse 35, he's been identified as the Son of God. He's someone with divine distinction. And here he comes to descend into the dirty waters of the Jordan. Why? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, have you ever read Jesus' baptism? You're wondering, like, why did he do that? Well, I think the key here is to see it as an act of identification rather than an act of repentance. Remember, John's preaching a baptism of repentance, but let's not be confused. Jesus didn't need to repent of anything. We need to see it as an act of identification with sinful people. Notice verse number 21. It says there in our text that all the people were baptized. So here you have this group. And if you remember earlier in Luke chapter 3, it was a ragtag group of people. I mean, John looks at the people he's baptizing. Do you remember what he calls them in chapter 3, verse 7? You brood of vipers, you snakes, he says to them. You greedy tax collectors, chapter 3, verse 12. You lying soldiers, chapter 3, verse 14. You sinful people. Why would Jesus identify himself with people like them? Well, it's because those are the very people Jesus came to save. Don't you remember the prophet Isaiah? It will say this in in Isaiah chapter 53. He is numbered with transgressors. Sure, he was numbered with transgressors on a cross. Remember, he was pinned between two thieves. But he was numbered with transgressors at his baptism. He was identifying with the very people he came to save. Maybe we could put it like this. He identified with sinners so that one day sinners could be identified with him. Now, this section of the text is short, but I want to highlight a few things before we move to the next section. Notice that as Jesus is being baptized, he's doing something. Do you see that in verse number 21? Jesus is doing something. What's he doing? He's he's praying. Jesus is praying at his baptism. It's almost as if Jesus is reaching up to heaven in prayer. And what we see unfold in this text is that the Father speaks down to him. Now, we may not receive an audible response from God when we pray, but we can be sure, like the psalmist says in Psalm 4.3, that the Lord hears when I call. In Jesus' case, at his baptism, he's there praying And the heavens are actually going to open and a voice from heaven is going to speak to him. Pretty amazing. What I'd like like you to, to know is that Luke, as we fold through the gospel of Luke, Luke highlights the fact that Jesus prays more than any other gospel writer. We're going to encounter Jesus praying more in the gospel of Luke than in any other gospel. And I think what it teaches us is that if Jesus bathed his decisions... If Jesus marinated his daily life in prayer, then maybe we should do the same. So in verse 21, we see Jesus praying at his baptism. And what happens then is the heavens open. And whenever you see that phrase in scripture, you should prepare yourself for some sort of divine revelation. This phrase occurs in different texts in both Old and New Testament where the heavens open, and as soon as the heavens open, you should expect that God's going to reveal something. 
so it is here. The heavens open. And what happens? But the Holy Spirit begins to descend, and Luke puts it this way, in bodily form. In other words, we're not just thinking about a force or that Jesus had some vision that no one else could see. No, the Spirit descended in some sort of bodily form. In other words, a visible form. And he likens it to a dove in verse 22. I was trying to picture, like, okay, what is, what is this like? I live right across from Tracy Aviary, right around the corner here, which means I get to hear the birds all the time, and they make crazy sounds over in the aviary. Sometimes during the summer, from my front yard, I can hear them doing the bird show. I haven't seen it personally, but I've heard it many times. The bird show is some sort of worker over in Tracy area, Aviary is in a little amphitheater thing, and they must have a hawk or a bird that flies. Anybody seen this? Okay, there's a few of you, and you can help me understand it after the service a little bit more. I just hear it. And this person talks about the bird, and I just picture, like, here's this hawk flying around, and all the people are ducking, and I'm not sure if that's what happens or not, but that's what I picture, and someone's like, oh, gross, you know. And um, you're doing this, and then this bird kind of circles and flies, and then the trainer holds out their arm, and it descends and lands on their arm. That's what I picture. I don't know if that's what happens. Go see it yourself. But when I imagine Jesus at this baptism, the heavens open and the spirit descends like a dove and you almost can imagine people's eyes are captivated and it's, it's moving around and where's it going to go and where's it going to land and it descends upon Jesus and remains there. Now the fact that the spirit descended upon Jesus and remained became the identifying marker for John the Baptist. And I don't have time to unpack all of this, but if you were to ask John the Baptist, hey John, how do you know that your cousin Jesus is the Messiah? Here's what John would say, and it's in John chapter one. John would say, well, I saw the spirit descend and remain upon him. This was a significant thing that took place, identifying Jesus as the Christ or the Messiah. And not only that, but it set the tone for Jesus' whole ministry. I mean, think about how the Holy Spirit intersected with the life and ministry of Jesus. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit, Luke chapter 1, verse 35. The Spirit descends upon him, Luke chapter 3, verse 22. When we get to Luke 4, verse 1, we're going to find that Jesus is filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit. The coming of the Spirit symbolized Jesus' anointing and his empowerment for ministry. And I can't help but think, if Jesus needed to be overshadowed by the Spirit for effective ministry, maybe you and I need that as well. Well, the text continues, and the Spirit is descending upon Jesus and remaining there, and you wonder if some of the people were thinking about other places where the Spirit shows up like that. Like, go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Do you remember when there's, the earth was without form and void and the Spirit hovered over that at creation? Like, kind of hovering like a bird? Do you remember the dove thing? You know, I mean, we're like, hey, where else do we see a dove in Scripture? There's this guy named Noah, a great flood. He lets out a dove, symbolic of this new creation. When the dove descends and remains on Jesus, you wonder if some people were thinking, this is the ushering in of a new, better, final creation. I want you to imagine yourself, because sometimes if we put ourselves in the place of the biblical text, we can see things come to life. 
It's one of the reasons I'm so excited for some of you going to Israel. And one day I will join you. You're going to go to Israel and you're going to see some of these places, right? Well, I want you to imagine yourself in this wilderness scene where Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist. And so you have this wilderness, rocky crags, and the Jordan River coming down through it. And and in this barren stretch of earth, I want you to listen to Isaiah. Listen to Isaiah. Rise up. Hear my voice. Tremble. Tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breasts until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. Isaiah 32. Continue to listen to Isaiah. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, for I will pour water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. Dry wilderness turned into fertile fields. And the symbol of this happening is the spirit. You just wonder if those people at that baptism seeing the spirit descend upon Jesus wondered to themselves, is this the inauguration of what Isaiah had talked about. And we all know if we fast forward to Acts chapter 2, that's precisely what would happen. Jesus is going to baptize in the Spirit. And in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, all of these people are going to receive the Spirit. It's this outpouring where this dry ground is becoming fertile. And the Spirit is doing an enlivening work. And that was symbolized here at Jesus' baptism. Isaiah pictured people turning to God in repentance and the Spirit being poured out And we see the inauguration of that here at Jesus' baptism. We have the Son praying, the Spirit descending, and then we hear the Father speaking. I don't know if you do this in your Bible, but sometimes when there are Trinitarian sections, I put a little triangle and go, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, just off the side of my margin. And this is one of those spaces. Did you you catch that? You have Jesus He's standing in the water. The spirit, he descends upon him. And then in verse 22, we hear a voice from heaven. The father speaks. How do you know it's the father? Because he says, my son. (laughs) That's how. Okay, the father's speaking. Now, grammatically, all the subordinate clauses of verse 21 point to verse 22. They're, They're subject to verse 22. It's almost as if all the arrows pointing from verse 21 Point us to verse 22 so that we will hear the heavenly voice. This entire section about Jesus' baptism drives in a single direction, and that's that we would hear the words of the Father. And what does the Father say in verse 22? Look at the text. In verse 22, the Father speaks from heaven and says, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. It's almost as if we get this point of contrast here for a moment. The people of Israel, those who had come out to be baptized with a baptism of repentance, the people of Israel were out of relationship with God. They were unacceptable to him, even in spite of their Jewish birth. But here, the voice from heaven says, Jesus is acceptable. He is in right relationship with the Father. And so it's almost in this moment when the Father speaks, there's this grand paradox. Jesus in his baptism declares solidarity with, but also distinction from 
all of humanity. You see, he's numbered with the transgressors, and yet he's different because he's well-pleasing to the Father. Now, this line, you are my beloved son, I am well-pleased with you, this line would have triggered different passages in the minds of Jewish listeners. Those who knew the Old Testament, when they would hear, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased, they would have thought of probably some Old Testament texts, perhaps like Psalm 2-7. You are my son. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the end of the earth your possessions. You are my son. Additionally, I wonder if the heavenly phrase, with you I am well pleased, would have reminded the Jews of Isaiah 42-1, where it says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, listen to this, in whom my son delights. In other words, in whom I am well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. That's Isaiah 42. So you just wonder if those Jews that are there at the Jordan River, listening to the Father in heaven, break the silence, say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You wonder if they're thinking Psalm 2, 7, this is my son. Isaiah 42, 1. This is the one in whom my soul delights, who the Spirit will come upon and he will bring justice to the nations. You wonder if maybe they thought of Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis 22, God speaks to Abraham. He says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, your son whom you love. Do you catch that? Your beloved son. Take your beloved son and go to the land of Moriah or Jerusalem and offer him there on one of the mountains that I will I will tell you. You just wonder if some of these echoes from the Old Testament just were, were, were coming up into the hearts and minds of these Jewish listeners as they hear from heaven, this is my beloved son. I am pleased with him. Well, the Father's words give this heavenly witness that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is deeply loved by the Father, and that he is well-pleasing to God. You get this sense in this short phrase from heaven, you get this sense of the Father's affection and the Father's approval. I want you to think about that for a second. The Father's affection and the Father's approval. You are my beloved son, affection. I am well pleased with you, approval. Now, we can read right over those because if you've come to church for any length of time, if you've read the Bible for any length of time, you've come across that phrase, you can probably quote it, no problem, move on. But I actually think that phrase is so powerful. Son, I love you. Son, I am deeply pleased with you. You know, in our culture today, we talk about people with daddy issues. We have movies and books with these fatherhood themes. And I think it's because people like us, people like us long for those words. Son or daughter, I love you. Son or daughter, I am well pleased with you. I can't tell you how many people I've met with their whole life has had a direction because they've been longing for the affection and the approval of their parents. 
And here in this text is this beautiful phrase from heaven. I love you. And you are well-pleasing to me. My kids last night, I was coming up from finishing my manuscript and look at the TV and they're watching A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Anybody ever seen that? A Beautiful, it's with uh, Tom Hanks. Wait, three people. You're missing out. (laughs) Listen, I, I was so moved by that movie. It's about Mr. Rogers. Okay, it's about Mr. Rogers. And some of us are old enough to have watched Mr. Rogers when we were kids. And, uh, you know, it was a corny kids show that most people today would laugh at. But if you, if, you, if you watch this movie and trace this story, it has powerful fatherhood themes. Powerful. And the thing, like, brings me to tears. Um, I mean, a moving work. And I think it's because deep in our hearts, we long for this. Like, oh, that we would hear, you are loved and I approve of you. Can you imagine how this must have sustained Jesus? I think we we sometimes think of Jesus as this, this cast steel that can never be touched. And we forget that he wept at Lazarus's grave. Can you imagine how hearing from the Father, I love you and I approve of you, must have sustained him when people lied about him and stabbed him in the back and betrayed him and said, you're filled with a demon or accused him of being some product of immorality. Can you imagine how the words of the Father must have strengthened him and brought him deep security? My friends, I'm here to tell you that the joy of the gospel is this. If you are in Christ, then the Father is just as pleased with you as he is with Jesus. And so you can hear those words. I mean, you can hear those words from your Father in heaven. I love you, and you are well-pleasing to me. If you are in Christ, you're just as loved as the Son. If you stand in the merits of Jesus by faith, then God's affection and his approval rest on you. Listen to the words of 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? We should be called children of God. And so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. I love you. And you are well-pleasing to me. What we find in this opening section of Jesus' baptism is that he is the beloved son. And if you're in Christ, you are too. Here's the second thing we see about Jesus. Not only is he the beloved son, but Jesus is the better son. Now this part, to me, is one of the most exciting sections in this whole text this morning. Because Luke is doing something that will, like, you'll be like, yes, Here's why. Because you've probably read this and you've wondered to yourself, like like I have, like, why does Luke put the genealogy in chapter three? Why can't he be more like Matthew? You know, Matthew helps us out. He just starts the first chapter, the book of the genealogy of Jesus. 
he traces Jesus' lineage all the way through David and Abraham. And we're like, oh, now I know who Jesus is. And then he tells us the birth story. Then we get the ministry of Jesus. And it all seems to make logical sense. But then we start reading Luke and we say, this guy must have been confused. Must have been traveling with Paul, had a shipwreck or two, I don't know, got bonked in the head. Why does he put the genealogy in chapter 3? Why does he do baptism, genealogy, temptation? Well, the reason is, is because Luke actually wants to deal with this idea that Jesus is the Son of God and he's a better son. I'm going to tell you who he's better than in just a minute. But in our text, we get this long list of names. They're ones that I don't know and probably can't pronounce, and so I decided not to make a fool of myself and commend the reading of them to you. Now, we know Jesus is about 30 years old. He begins his public ministry. Luke does this little phrase that upholds the virgin birth. Why does he put 30 years old? Maybe so that we get this idea that God's timing can't be rushed. But then, then he goes through this genealogy. And most of us in Western culture undervalue genealogies. We mistakenly think that our individuality and our autonomy reign, and we're somehow uninfluenced by our family of origin. But most of the world, for most of time, would disagree with us. Here in our text, there's a few things we can note. First, the direction of the family tree is different from Matthew's. In Matthew 1, 1 through 17, he traces Jesus' lineage from Abraham to David all the way down to Jesus himself. Luke goes the opposite direction. He goes from Jesus and works backwards through David, through Abraham. And he actually, this is interesting, Luke takes it all the way back to Adam. And perhaps that's to highlight that Jesus is the savior of the human race, not just the Jewish race. The second thing we can notice about this genealogy, in comparison to Matthew's, Matthew focuses on a royal line. Luke seems to be highlighting a biological line or a physical uh, generation, a physical line. And many scholars think that perhaps his, um, his genealogy is different because he travels through Leverite marriage or adoptions that took place in the genealogy. The third thing I think we should notice in contrast to Matthew's genealogy is Matthew has these three sets of 14 representative names. Luke, on the other hand, has 77 names, some of which we recognize and many of which we don't. I mean, let me just highlight a few just to show you, okay, you do know something about the Bible and so do I. Okay, we've heard of a guy named Judah and someone named Joseph, verse 30, okay? So we know some of these. Uh, verse 31, do you see a guy's name there named David? Okay, we've heard of him. Verse 32, Boaz. Look at verse 34, you'll be really encouraged. We have Abraham, we have Isaac and Jacob, we've heard of them. But then we have these names that, I mean, we, we have never heard of. Uh, some of them. I mean, look at verse 25. Esli, never heard of him. Arnie, verse 33. These are like Utah names, you know. <laughs> I don't know. I love this one. Look at verse 33. You see verse 33? Admin. All we know is he was really good at paperwork, you know, I mean, <laughs> details. Admin. Uh, I don't know these people. 
half of, of Luke's genealogical references, we, we don't have other references to them in the Old Testament. And so what's the point here? Well, Luke's gospel is going to record a long line of sinners in this genealogy. I mean, in verse 34, we have a guy named Terah. He was an idolater. In verse 30, we have Judah. He slept with prostitutes. In verse 34, we have Abraham. He was a liar. Jacob, he was a thief. Verse 31, we have David. He was a murderer and an adulterer. Verse 36, we have Noah. He was a drunk. And amidst this rabble of rebels, we find Jesus, the spotless lamb of God, the sinless son, the light in whom there is no darkness at all. What we learn from this genealogy, my friends, is that Jesus was born among sinners so that he might save sinners. I want you to think about it in the sense that Jesus is like us. In the sense that he came down into the pit with us. He took on flesh and he dwelt among us. He's part of this long genealogy. He's like us. But he's unlike us. In that we're in the pit because of our fall of disobedience. But Jesus is in the pit because of his descent of obedience. We followed the path of Adam right down into sin and death, but Jesus didn't. He came to us and never let go of the rope that connected him to heaven. He remained in an unbroken relationship with the Father. And so if we cling to him, we can be rescued. The main idea of this genealogical section is this. Jesus is the better son. And in particular, Jesus is better than Adam. I want you to catch that. He traces this genealogy all the way back to Adam. Look at the last verse of chapter 3 and be shocked and amazed. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Did you catch how he's talking about Adam? We all know that Jesus is the son of God, but here he's saying that Adam is the son of God. Now you may be tempted to scream out blasphemy, but no, that's what the Bible is saying here. Adam, in one sense, was the son of God. Now, do you start seeing the connection here? The baptism ends with the father saying, you are my beloved son. You're my son, Jesus. And then Luke moves us right into the genealogy and says, yeah, but Adam was also called the son of God. Jesus, the son of God. Adam, the son of God. But what Luke wants us to conclude is that Jesus is the better son. How is it that Adam's the son of God? Well, think about it. Did he have a biological father? No. Did he, did he come about through normal means of reproduction? No. God formed him, remember, from the dust. Did Adam have a belly button? No. <laughs> At least not that we know of. Drop the mic whenever you say that. You know. God made Adam from the dust of the ground. He formed him, and hence, in one sense, he was called the son of God. He was made in the image of God. He was meant to cultivate the garden, extend God's rule, crush all opposition. Adam, from our text, is called the son of God. But Adam, as a son, rebelled against his father. You just read that in Genesis chapter 3. He replaced trust with doubt. He refused to subdue the serpent. And ultimately, he sacrificed his relationship 
with God the Father. That was Adam, the son of God. But Luke wants us to know that Jesus is the better son. Jesus is better than Adam because Jesus trusts the Father. Jesus remains loyal and faithful to the Father. Jesus will ultimately crush the serpent's head, Genesis 3.15. So whereas the first Adam, the Son of God, brought death and sin to humanity, this second Adam, the Son of God, Jesus, brings life and immortality to all who believe. Adam was a son who brought the plague. Jesus was the son who brought the cure. Jesus is the better son of God. He's better than Adam. And then that takes us right into the temptation. Because in the temptation, he wants to show us that Jesus is better than Israel. Did you, did you know that Israel is also called the son of God? I don't know if you've caught this as you've read the Old Testament. Adam is called the son of God. And then Israel, interestingly enough, is called the son of God. In passages like Exodus 4.22, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Israel is called the son of God. Jeremiah 31, 9, I am the father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt, I called my son. Israel was called the son of God. Israel was supposed to keep God's covenants, live in obedience, be a light to the nations, be a kingdom of priests, bringing the families of the earth to God and God to the families of the earth. But Israel like Adam, Israel was an unfaithful son. Israel was full of distrust. Israel was constantly complaining. Israel broke the covenant. They repeatedly disobeyed God. They disregarded the nations and they let the tribes and tongues and kindred and people in the dark. They weren't a light like they were supposed to be. And so in this next section of the temptation of Jesus, here's what Luke is trying to do. He wants us to see that Jesus is a better son. He's better than Israel. Where Israel failed, Jesus did not. Consider Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And notice how in chapter 4, verses 3 and 9, Satan says to him, if you're the son of God, and then tries to tempt him. So are you seeing the continuity here? Jesus at his baptism is called my beloved son, the son of God. He's better than Adam in the genealogy, and he's better than Israel in the temptation. Let me see if I can unpack this and make sure you see the connection between the two sons in the temptation, Israel and Jesus. It is not a mistake to realize that Israel was baptized into Moses in the crossing of the Red Sea. Do you know it, said, it says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10? When Israel crossed through the Red Sea, it says they were baptized or identified with Moses. Not only that, but they end up in the wilderness to be tempted. And how long are they tempted or tested in the wilderness? It's 40 years. Do you see the correlation here where Jesus, after being baptized, is led by the Spirit into the wilderness? Look at chapter 4, verse 2, 1 and 2. 
He's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. Luke is drawing these intentional parallels between Israel and Jesus. Jesus is the better son. The place, the wilderness, the length of time, 40 years, the passing through or the baptism, all of these things draw these parallels so that we can see the contrast. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. Where Israel capitulated, Jesus stood, stood strong. And so in, in chapter 4, he just unfolds these three temptations. And I just want to talk about them briefly and show you the contrast between Jesus and Israel and how Jesus is better. Notice first, the first temptation, the devil tempts Jesus along the lines of provision. I think that's a helpful word to summarize the first temptation. The devil tempts Jesus along the lines of provision, and that's in verses 2 through 4. Here they are in this barren wasteland, this wilderness known by Jews as the devastation. Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days. He's weak. He's alone. He's vulnerable. And the devil comes to him, and the devil wants to tempt him to doubt his relationship with the Father. I mean, I just want you to picture Jesus here. He has not eaten in over a month. He's out in the crags of these rocks in the wilderness. He's, he's been alone. And the Spirit led him there. He was led there by God to suffer in that wilderness. And the devil comes to him, and he wants him to question his relationship with the Father. You can almost imagine the devil saying things like, well, if you really are the Son of God, then why has he left you here to starve? A good father wouldn't make you suffer like this. If he really cared about you, he wouldn't make you go through this difficulty. You're going to have to take matters into your own hands. Obviously, the father's not going to provide. You're going to have to provide for yourself. I want you to pause for a second and just ask yourself, have you ever heard temptations like that? Oh, if he was a good father, he wouldn't let you suffer like this. If he really cared about you, he wouldn't leave you here. Oh, you can't trust him to take care of you. Look at yourself. You're going to have to take matters into your own hands. The devil wanted Jesus to doubt the Father's good provision and deal with things himself. That's how Israel failed in the wilderness. Do you remember how many times they doubted the goodness of God? I mean, go to the Old Testament, work your way through Exodus, and listen to the complaining voices of all those Israelites whining and griping against God. He's not a good provider. Look at us. We've got no meat. Look at us. There's no water. Look at us. You've left us out here to die. It would have been better if we were back in, his, in, in Egypt where we had cucumbers and melons and stuff like that. And I always wonder to myself, like, wow, that's idealistic distortion. You didn't have any of that. You were being killed. It always looks better, and they gripe against God's goodness. Well, Israel failed in the wilderness. They doubted the goodness of God. They tried to take matters into their own hands. At one point, they're about to stone Moses and Aaron for not leading them well, and, and they were going to desert back to Egypt, take matters into their own hands. But Jesus didn't yield to temptation like Israel did. Jesus was the better son. He looks at the devil, and he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. You see it in verse 4 of our text. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. 
If you were to look at the context of that whole quote from Deuteronomy, this is how that whole section from Deuteronomy goes. God humbled you and let you hunger, but he fed you with manna, which you did not know nor your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing didn't wear out on you. Your foot didn't swell these 40 years. In other words, God has been a good provider. You may not have gotten what you wanted, but he always gave you what you needed. God sustained his people for 40 years. My friends, don't doubt God's good provision. To all of you in this room who are waiting, to all of you in this room who are suffering, don't doubt your father's goodness. He always provides for his children what they need. What I love about Jesus here is that it was scripture, the Old Testament, Deuteronomy. It was scripture, not life circumstances that defined the character of God. Stop for a second. How many of you are defining God by your life circumstances? In other words, you're suffering. It hurts. You've had to wait a long time. You don't have what you want. And because of your life circumstance, you define God. So God must be not good, not a provider, not caring. Stop defining God by your life circumstances and start defining God by his word. That's what Jesus did. Here he's hungering. He's languishing. He's alone. And yet he looks to God's word to know the character of his father. My friends, I want you to know from this first temptation that sometimes God leads us into hunger before he leads us out of it. In other words, it may be better to be hungry in the will of God than satiated in disobedience. I just wonder in this room this morning if some of you are right on the edge of giving into this temptation. You are tired of waiting on God and you're about to take matters into your own hands and I want to tell you this morning Learn from Jesus, it is better to be hungry in the will of God than to be satiated in disobedience. My friend, is your faith so shallow that you will only follow the voice of God into comfort and ease and safety? Or will you follow him no matter where he leads you? The same God that said, you are my beloved son, I'm well pleased with you. The same God that said that is the God that took him into the wilderness for 40 days to fast. And what that means is the same God that takes us to green pastures and still waters may lead us through valleys where death's shadows loom. But we can't doubt the character of God. We can't take things into our own hand. God is good and he provides. The first temptation was about provision. The second temptation was about power. So if you want a key word for the second temptation, it's the devil's tempting Jesus along the lines of power. He takes him to a high place, shows him the kingdoms of the world, and says all this authority and all this glory can be yours if you'll just worship me. It's almost as if Satan is tempting Jesus to sidestep God's plan. You see, the father had already promised Jesus that he would have all the kingdoms of the earth. It's in Psalm chapter two, verses seven and eight. You are my son. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. God had already promised that to his son. But first, Jesus was going to have to suffer and die. And so the devil is tempting him. You don't have to wait and suffer. You don't have to deny yourself 
Have it early. Take the pleasure without the suffering. Have you ever heard temptations like that in your ear? Jesus responds with words from Deuteronomy again. It is written, look at verse 8, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, him only shall you serve. Where Israel succumbed to idolatry, remember they built a golden calf, Jesus upheld the exclusive worship of the true and living God. There are important lessons for us, I think, to catch here. And that is that God's pattern often takes us from suffering to glory. Satan's pattern is to offer vainglory first and then plunge you into suffering afterwards. Jesus knew, however, he knew there was no crown without a cross and no glory without suffering. Satan tempted regarding provision. He tempted him regarding power. And lastly, he tempted him along the lines of protection. And we see that in verses 9 through 12. Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. It's this spot that overlooks the Kidron Valley, has a 450-foot drop. There the devil quotes some verses. Did you catch this? I, you know, I'm fascinated by this little, little part of the text, and that is it's likely the devil knows Scripture better than you and me. Just, just grab a few little quotes from Psalm 91. You all could do that too, right? Psalm 91. Do you want to know how deficient I am? I mean, I'm looking here. I have to look in my cross-reference. Where is he quoting from again? Oh, yeah, yeah, Psalm 91. But I didn't even know what the next verse is in Psalm, Psalm 91, which is fascinating, actually. The devil quotes verses 11 and 12. It just happens to leave off verse 13. Did you know that either? I mean, I didn't know that until just this week studying that. I'm like, oh, look, he's, he's quoted Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. Yeah, God's not going to let you. Oh, he's going to hold you up. Yeah, he conveniently leaves off verse 13. Verse 13 says this, the serpent you will trample underfoot. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? That's the very next verse of Psalm 91, and Satan just leaves that one off. Jesus knew. No, you're not going to manipulate the Father. No, you're not going to put the Lord to the test. That's what he says in verse number 12. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is a reference to Israel. Israel did put God to the test at Massa, and they were destroyed. It says that in Deuteronomy, but Jesus will not test the faithfulness of God. Why? Because he's convinced that God is faithful. He's not going to demand from God with a heart of unbelief. God may prove our mettle through testing, but we're not allowed to prove his. Why? Well, because he's always faithful. I also think this is a silly test in some ways, and that is because Jesus didn't come for self-preservation. Jesus didn't come for self-protection. You know, Satan's tempting him. You'll be protected. You'll be preserved. And you just wonder if Jesus is thinking in the back of his mind, oh, you have no idea. He didn't come for self-protection or self-preservation. Actually, he'd be pinned to a cross. There would be a day in which he would deliver his spirit over to the Father, and it was from the cross Luke chapter 23, verse 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He wasn't going to tempt God to magically protect him. He was going to give his life over to the Father to be sacrificed on behalf of sinners. It was not about a daredevil stunt. It was about redemption in the end. And so he resists the devil. 
this whole section, Jesus appeals to Scripture, but not just any Scripture. He appeals to Deuteronomy. Why? Well, because Deuteronomy was written to Israelites who had failed. But Jesus is the Son who never fails. He's the beloved Son. He's the better Son. He's better than Adam. He's, he's better than Israel. And what that means, finally, is that he is qualified to be our beautiful Savior. Because he's the beloved son, because he's the better son, it makes him a beautiful savior. What Adam lost and Israel neglected, Jesus displayed with unfeigned fidelity. Jesus actively obeyed the Father in everything. Sometimes in Christianity, we get this view of substitutionary atonement as like the pinnacle of salvation. And, and it is. I mean, Christ on the cross, in, in the place of sinners, without it, we would not be saved. But I want to tell you something. Without his obedience that led up to the cross, we would not be saved. His active obedience. He's 30 years old when this text starts. He obeyed every single second of those 30 years. He obeyed every single second of his entire life. We get a little glimpse of the devil tempting Jesus. But his active obedience is what creates what could metaphorically be called a robe of righteousness. My friend, if you're ever going to stand before God, have you ever thought about this? If you're ever going to stand before God, how do you want to be robed? Do you want to be robed in your merits? Do you want all your flaws and failures to be displayed before a high and holy God? Or do you want to be robed in the righteousness of Jesus? You see, that's what this text is explaining to us. The active obedience of Christ means he can wrap sinners like you and me in a robe of righteousness so that we can be rightly related to the Father. Where Adam capitulated and Israel complained, Jesus trusted the Father faultlessly. His perfect obedience is a covering for sinners like you and me. It's something humanity has needed since the fall. Praise be to God for the sinless son named Jesus.